even when you're off duty, you're on duty. Manual strangulation, you would see multiple different impressions of hands. Visible ligature wounds was, there was a loose shoelace. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is my lovely co-host. Oh, Jim. Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we're back in the studio. I feel like we're we're in like a stretch run. I think we're going to be in the studio together now for weeks. That'll be... Wonderful, Francie. <laughs> I wish you all could see Jim's face when he says that he has a pained look on his face, but I know he's just kidding. Ah, uh, definitely just <laughs> kidding. Yes. But with us today, we have a very special guest. Hi, I'm Tim Johnson, retired Hawthorne PD detective. Well, it's so good to have you with us, Tim. Thank you. It's great. I'm excited to have Tim. Tim, why don't you tell our listeners where Hawthorne is? Well, Hawthorne's located in the South Bay. California, um, right? South Bay, yeah. Hawthorne, California. Uh, we're next to Inglewood, California. Uh, El Segundo, Manhattan Beach, Cardina. So Southern Long Beach Cal- around yeah. there somewhere? Yeah, about 15 miles oh. north of Long Beach. Uh, okay. All right. So what's exciting about this, Jim, is that Tim's in the studio with us. You know, we get a lot of our listeners who are podcast connoisseurs, maybe I should oh, really? say. Yes. And sometimes they uh, complain or register their displeasure. That's better. Register their displeasure with our sound quality. And of course, sometimes it's because we're all remote from each other. Right. Well, that's partly due to the fact that we all have very, very busy professional lives. And yet we still want to make sure that we get out a podcast every week with somebody who's going to tell us something really interesting about their career in law enforcement. And so we're really happy to have you here, Tim, to talk about your career in Hawthorne PD. How long were you in the Hawthorne PD? Uh, 25 years. Wow. And did you retire then? I did. I retired um, on my 50th birthday. Really? I did too. Not on your 50th birthday. I retired (laughs) on my 50th birthday. That would be weird. (laughs) Well, you know. You never know. It could be the same day. It could be the same day. We're not going to talk about that, though. Okay, so anyway, what did you do when you were in Hawthorne PD? Um, I worked as a patrol officer. Uh, After a few years in patrol, I was on the bicycle crime impact team. Wait, wait, wait. 
I'm sorry. I have to stop. I know. Impact team. No. Bicycle crime. Bicycle. I have to stop already because we, Tim, you might not know this, here at Best Case, Worst Case, we have a lot of female listeners. And when we have uh, law enforcement professionals on who are discussing things that they did that are particularly oh, interesting, we need to know important <laughs> things like what was the uniform? Our uniform was a white polo shirt and black uh, BDUs. Oh, that's not that exciting. Well, you were looking. I mean, I'm sorry. That's great. You were hoping for shorts. (laughs) I was. I just assumed it was bike shorts. It's Southern California. It's hot. That close to the beach. Okay, so you're not on the beach. Okay, great. So that that gives us a little geography there. And if we could go on. Sorry. So you were on patrol, and then you went to the bicycle crime impact team. Now it's not just crimes on bikes, right? It's all (laughs) kinds of crimes, but you get there on a bike, right? Exactly. Okay. Just want to make sure. Explain, but explain how that works. I mean, I think I've seen it, you know, on TV a couple of times or two where you have bike cops, mounted cops, that sort of thing. What's the point of a bike unit? So at the time, they used the bicycle crime impact team as a zero tolerance unit that would go and impact areas that had high crime. So, so. it's a bigger, more present presence of cops on the street. Yes. So you rode around neighborhoods? Rode around neighborhoods of Hawthorne, yes. And was that primarily designed, was it about drug activity probably at that point? Everything, uh, drug activity, gang activity, auto theft, shootings, anything. We responded to everything. Okay, cool. Wow. All right. Well, and that's so you cool. can do that in Southern California because you don't get rained on all the time on your bikes. Yes. That's I don't great. think we even have bike cops in Atlanta. Well, six square miles, so we, at times, we could go from one end of the city to the next on our bike. And stay in shape the whole time. I was going to say, you must have been super healthy. Not that you look anything, but by the way, listeners, Tim looks super healthy. Is that what he looks? That's what I think. Okay. Just wanted to know. (laughs) All right. So what did you do after that? From there, I went to uh, robbery homicide. And how long were you in robbery homicide? Uh, Well, first of all, I went there and I had just about five years on the job. So I was definitely, I was not only kind of like a rookie police officer still, but definitely a rookie detective. How did you manage that? There was an opening. Um, They did it by seniority in the detective bureau who wanted the open desk. Nobody wanted robbery homicides. Really? That's where I went as a new detective. You sound a lot like my brother, Tim, who volunteered to work in the worst district in his police department. Uh, right out of the academy because he was number one in his class and they gave him the choice. And so whereas maybe some cops would want to go to a more low-key neighborhood, he picked the worst. Which was called the Bloody Third, if that gives you some idea. Yeah, and he got in a lot of shootouts during that time period. He did. Luckily, he survived. But so you're a new detective on robbery homicide and you spent the rest of your career there? Nope. So at Hawthorne PD, small agency, we have rotations when you get into a specialist position such as the detective bureau. So at that time, it was five years. Hmm. Um, I was there three years because I lateraled to another agency after that third year. Okay, where'd you go? Torrance PD. Oh, okay. I was only there for five months. The city regained its financial stability in Hawthorne, so I came back. Okay. All right. And then you finished out your career in Hawthorne. Yes. And you were on various different bureaus during the course of that? Yeah, I worked uh, patrol, bicycle crime impact team, uh, detective bureau, narcotics bureau. I was, after about six years in narcotics, I became the canine handler in there. Uh, So I worked a a drug dog 
And during that, all that time, 13 years, I was on the department SWAT team. The last three years of that, I was the scout on the team. And what does that mean, the scout on the team? The scout plans all the operations that the team does to make sure everything goes smooth um, and safe. So it sounds to me, Tim, that you've done practically everything that cops do. I mean, you've had every assignment, bicycle cops, canine handler, narcotics, robbery, homicide, SWAT, sort of, SWAT, sort of what else is there? And I finished in the metro unit. And what does that and do? That again is, there was a metro unit back when I got into robbery, homicide, budget issues. Um, they dissolved the team in the 90s, but then brought it back in 2010. And that's when I became a member again of that. And essentially, that was that's a unit where we go out and generate our own cases on the streets. So you're an experienced 25-year veteran, Jim. I bet he has a lot of cases. Well, probably. And we're probably going to hear about at least one today. I hope so. So do you have a case in mind? I do. Okay. And can you just tell us where in your career you were when this case <clears throat> came in? I was a rookie robbery homicide detective. So what were you doing? When this case came into you? I believe uh, I was at a baseball game, my son's baseball game. Mm. It was a weekend. So wait, so what you're telling me and our listeners is that even when you're off duty, you're on duty. Yes. See, we promised our listeners that we're going to take them behind police lines. And I think that that's one of the things that this podcast says, I hope, has done well. And that is show people that the professionals, the investigators, the prosecutors, the agents, who fight crime. It's a 24-7 proposition. You you know, you may be off and you may be clocked out or even technically not getting paid, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get a call and that doesn't mean you're not going to have to help somebody. Right. That's correct. So you were at your son's ball game and what did you get a call? I got a call to respond to the station and begin an investigation. Okay. And how does that work? I mean, what do you do with your son in his ball game? Well, I was actually probably the coach as well. So oh, um, no. I, it was a long time ago. I don't really remember the exact details of how I got out of the ball game, but I went home, showered, got into my suit and responded to the station. Okay. And what did you find out when you got there? That we needed to go to a, an address in Hawthorne to investigate a possible homicide. Okay. And how far away from the station was that? Uh, about two miles. Okay. Is Hawthorne a generally a high crime area? Certain areas. Um, this was in that one of those areas. Okay. And so two miles away from the PD, you're responding. Do you have a partner? Are you out there alone? What's going on? So at the station, I met with my senior partner at the station and we responded to the location together. Okay. And at that time, so you were, you were the junior detective in this particular yes. investigation. Yeah. And so... Knowing where it was, did you have any information about what was gonna, what you were gonna find? Yes, we were told uh, that the location we were responding to was a deceased woman at this location where we were headed to. Okay, and when you arrived at the scene, what was the first thing that you saw? Uh, patrol officers on scene. They had been holding the house. So it was an individual house. It was family? actually it was actually an apartment. Apartment building, yeah. a two-bedroom apartment. So there's a deceased woman at the apartment. You get there. There's patrol officers already there. Do you have any idea how long it's been since there was that first response from maybe a 911 call? Was there one? 
Yeah, I think it was a check the welfare call. And, and explain what that means. Um, patrol officers had received a call to that location. I think it was due to a odor coming from the apartment, from inside the apartment somewhere. Um, and then the 14-year-old son of the woman who lived in there um, had made a statement to the apartment manager there that he didn't know where his mother was. Okay. And so two things, two pieces of information there. One, that this woman had a child, a 14-year-old, and he was not in the apartment? He lived in the apartment with mother and living boyfriend. Okay. And then... Not his father. Okay. Non-biological father figure. That's what we call them, right? Somebody in that situation. But... You also said that the neighbor called because of a smell. Yes. And in your experience as a homicide detective, does that mean some time has lapsed? Yes. From the yes. time somebody passed away? Yes. Well, Jim, this always reminds me, uh, I'm sure our listeners will remember that you were involved in the series, The Case of Kaylee Anthony, about the Casey Anthony murder trial. And that in that trial, there was in evidence very strong scent of decomposition, the smell of decomposition. And in that series, you actually did an experiment with some um, cadaver dogs and the way that they're trained with real human flesh. And you've smelled decomposition before. Mm -hmm. I have not, thank God, I'm happy to say. Not a pleasant thing. No, but I remember because I was on sex, I was a consulting producer on that show. And I was on the set when the when you all were filming those scenes with that piece of flesh that they that they put in the trunk of a car to see if the cadaver dogs could actually distinguish it from garbage and from like fresh pizza. When you open the trunk of the car after the cadaver dog alerted on it, the look on your face is something I won't forget. It was very clear you'd smelled something horrific, but also familiar. Mm. Yeah, well, you never forget that smell. Once you have never. to uh, smell it. It's bringing back great memories. Nine <laughs> eleven, that smell was just overwhelming. Oh, what? You know, you never hear about that. Uh, Bobby Chacon, of course, talked about nine eleven. You've talked before about being a first responder and being on the piles uh, of the, the trade pile. center yeah. um, <clears throat> on nine eleven. But I don't think you've ever talked about there being a smell. Mm. Yeah. Well. That's just overwhelming. I can't imagine. So that was something, obviously, Tim, in your career, because you'd responded, I assume, to other incidents where there were dead bodies, even before you became a homicide detective, yeah. you probably knew what the smell was and yeah, what it Before police work, I was an ambulance driver for five years prior to that. So mm, there you go. It's smelled Hey guys, when you think of the perfect gift, you probably don't think of an electric toothbrush. But the Quip electric toothbrush is one of the most gift-guided gifts of the season, and here's why. It's perfect for everyone, you know, with a mouth, and it's something they'll use twice every day. I love my Quip toothbrush. I got the copper one, and the sensitive sonic vibrations are gentle enough on my sensitive gums, and they have a built-in timer with guiding pulses to remind me when to switch sides. It also makes holiday travel, which I do all the time, clean and easy, with a multi-use cover that mounts to mirrors and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. There's a color to suit everyone. Like I said, I have the copper one. It's sleek 
sleek and metallic, but there's four other colors, two poppy plastics, a red brush, and a statement-making black brush that's brand new. I love Quip, and they have over 5,000 verified five-star reviews. Quip looks like a big-ticket tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash bestcase right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell your gifty that. Keep it yourself. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash bestcase. Do you guys have a family member who always tells the best stories? I know I do. They tell things like that boat trip everybody took or our first Thanksgiving abroad, we went to Italy. Well, StoryWorth was founded by a guy who wanted his dad to record his amazing stories. The family enjoyed the process so much they launched in April of 2013 so that families around the world could share in this gift as well. StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share their stories with weekly emailed story prompts, questions you've probably never thought to ask. All you have to do is purchase a subscription for someone you love or for yourself, and each week, StoryWorth will send an email with a question about their life. All they have to do is reply to the email with the story, or they can record it over the phone by calling StoryWorth. All these stories are private and they're only shared with the family that you choose. At the end of the year, you'll get stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. We love our StoryWorth subscription. It has helped us as a family laugh and cry together. And it's so much more personal than just a quick phone call or an email. For $20 off, go to storyworth.com slash bestcase right now and you'll get a discount when you subscribe. That's storyworth.com slash bestcase. So now you're on the scene. The responding officers tell you that they came for a welfare check and that the son had said he didn't know where his mother was and the neighbors had smelled something bad. Did you smell it when you arrived? Yeah, as soon as I arrived, I could smell it. The door was open and as soon as I got maybe 10 feet within the door, I could smell the odor. But wait, but the 14-year-old was living there? Well, I think we're going to find out. He was. <laughs> and what happened when you went in the front door? So we went in the front door. The officers explained that there was a deceased woman um, in the, the most uh, northwest bedroom of the apartment. Okay. And what did you have to do at that point? Went in and observed her um, immediately. Uh, noticed that she had uh, strangulation marks on her neck. So did it look like manual strangulation marks or ligature strangulation marks? Ligature. Mark? ligature. And explain the difference. Uh, the ligatures are thin, um, like a string or a rope or... Cord or something? Yes. Yeah, whereas manual strangulation, you would see multiple different impressions of hands wrapped around someone's neck and that would leave not only bruising but abrasions as well whereas the ligatures would usually be very straight and you can tell the difference between the natural form of a hand or hands and and a unnatural form of a a string or a rope around somebody's neck. Well, and given your experience both in homicide and ambulance driver and just as a police officer in general when you saw the woman's body and the what looked to be ligature uh, or strangulation marks to you, were you able to instantly say to yourself, okay, she, she was killed today or she's been killed, she was dead two days ago? Or did you have some thought about that? 
at first? Or does your training tell you not to think about that, to just wait for the facts? No, I could tell she had probably been dead for at least a few days by coloration of her skin and bloating. Wow. Yeah. Really? And so did you then conduct an investigation in that room? We did. And also spoke to the the 14-year-old who was still there. Okay. So he was where? In the apartment? He was outside the apartment when we arrived. Um, Officers had him outside. He was actually in the apartment manager's office. And you sat down and interviewed him? Went, went there and interviewed him and asked him what what he knew. And what did he say? He didn't know anything. Um, he was told a week, it was about a week prior, by the live-in boyfriend, which was kind of like his dad. He that guy had Step been around. Situation. Yeah, he'd been around for a long time mm-hmm. um, since the, since the son the son of the deceased was very young. So he said that uh, he didn't know anything that the his like stepfather had told him that his mom had went um, went away for like a trip, and so he would get up and go to school every day and come home. And he, but the only thing he would notice that was weird is that um, his mom's bedroom door was never open when he was as long as he was in the apartment. Okay, and where was the body in the bedroom? She was on the floor adjacent to the bed. Okay, and so on the far side of the bed, for example, from the doorway or. Uh, closer to the doorway. Okay. Right when you went in the doorway, you could see her off to your left. So let me just let me just make sure I understand this because I'm just I really have trouble computing this. You have um, a woman, her boyfriend, and her son who all live in an apartment together. Does the child live there? Did your investigation tell you sort of full time? Did he have a was there a, a biological father in the picture? Not in the picture. Okay, so he lived there full time, and his mother is dead in her bedroom. Stepfather tells him that she's on a trip or that she's going to be gone for a few days. So he's living, this child, this 14-year-old boy is living in an apartment with his mother's boyfriend and his mother's dead body and he doesn't even know it. Doesn't know it. And his door to his bedroom is eight feet away from his mom's door. Was there any point where you thought to yourself, I mean, obviously as an investigator, you have to keep an open mind, but did you wonder whether he was a suspect? I mean, did you suspect him ever? No, um, no. Because that I just didn't. seems weird. Is to that me. based on his demeanor? His demeanor, yeah. You and know, his concerned. He was really concerned. Like he, he still had not been told that his mom was in that room dead. Was he the one who called for the welfare check? He had the same time that someone had called us, and it was someone within the apartment. He had a conversation with the manager and and asked, "I don't know where my, my mom is." So for days. again, we try to take our listeners behind police lines. Tell me as a person and as a father, you've talked about, you went, you responded to this from your son's baseball game. You don't suspect him. So you know now that his mom has been dead inside the apartment with him for a period of time. Someone's going to eventually have to tell him, do you feel empathy for him? Do you try to suppress that? How does that kind of thing impact you? You have to be concerned about that child. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And when you're, when I was talking to him, you're, I'm trying not to think about it and just keep interviewing and find out as much information I can get out of him before he's going to hear the news and break down. At that point, uh, our interview with him would be done. Yeah. So clearly, the the situation was such that this is a 
a difficult situation that you're in with this poor teenage boy, but also it seems like the stepfather has information that's relevant to this case, right? Yes, absolutely. So tell me what the child, the 14-year-old, said. If you, I assume you asked him a lot of questions about the stepfather and his behavior over the last few days, going in and out of the bedroom, et cetera. Tell us what the child told you about that. He said the only thing unusual about the stepfather was the way he would go in and out of the bedroom. Um, he would only open the door enough to fit his body in, and then he closed the door behind him. And he noticed that the child noticed that he did notice that, but he believed him when he was told that his mom was out of town. Jim, what a heartless guy! Can you imagine? He's just the dead body's laying on the bedroom floor, it's just more going than in heartless, and out. Francie, it's I mean that's not just heartless. How do you live in a room with your ex that you just killed for days? You're presuming he killed her. I'm going to wait and see if he Oh, really? Him. Yeah, because well. Because unlike you, I'm not judgy. Okay, well, I'm <laughs> I'm putting my money on him, all right? Okay, I'm going to wait because it could be aliens. All right, there it could be. So, when did you get an opportunity to talk to the, to the stepfather? Well, before talking to the stepfather, we obviously conducted the crime scene at the apartment. The one thing we did notice that was consistent with her visible ligature wounds was there was a loose shoelace sitting right there on the dining room table. Mm. And, and, it was, and it was just sitting on the dining room table. There was a few items on the table, but that was clear that the shoestring by itself, no shoes around, um, was sitting on the table. Oh, my God. So, okay, Jim, I'm, I'm off the alien theory already. Okay, good. Wow. Because aliens don't wear sneakers? Uh, probably not. And they don't leave a shoestring behind if they do. Okay, so you notice a shoestring. That seems like that's pretty observant of you guys to see in a house that seems like it must have been at least a little disordered if the child doesn't notice the smell of decomposition and his mother's body in a room there has to be some disorder going on and for you guys to notice a a shoestring and think to yourself well that might be the murder weapon i think is is really great actually it was a very small apartment like i said two bedroom but the rest of the apartment was very small the bedrooms went out into the living room which went to a door to get in and out of the place. Um, and everything was orderly. It was a clean apartment. So you see a shoelace on the dining room table, obviously out of place. Mm -hmm. And does someone say, hey, let's first photograph it, then seize it as evidence? Yeah, possible. it was photographed. Our CSI person came out, photographed everything, and recovered what we thought was of evidentiary value at the scene. And did you see anything else in the bedroom that was indicative of murder? No. Okay. Did you see anything when you first went into the bedroom? Because obviously at that point, it smells like a domestic murder, right? I mean, obviously, you know that going in, you have to assume that there's that possibility. But did you see any other sign that would suggest an intruder? That is, any sign that she'd been sexually assaulted and murdered? I know it sounds so stupid yeah. when the man's going in and out of the bedroom, obviously. But still, you have to you have to weigh that and you have to discount if, if you find no evidence you of it. You have to rule it out, right? Yeah. From what I remember, she had her nightgown on and nothing other than the ligature strangulation marks, um, nothing else looked um, suspicious about her body. So what happened next? You interview the child, so, you did yeah, the CSI. Child, we did tell the son on scene um, what we had discovered in, in his apartment. 
Um, he was devastated. We were able to get hold of a family member of um, his mom's mm. um, who actually eventually came down to the station. We eventually transferred him to the station and he was picked up there later on by family. Mm, poor boy. What a horrific, horrific yeah. experience. And then what did you do next in the investigation? So after the crime scene was completed at the apartment and the coroner removed the woman from the apartment, uh, we responded back to the station um, to attempt to contact the husband for an interview. Where was he? Was he there? He was at the Hawthorne oh, okay. jail. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh, he was already at the Hawthorne jail. So how yeah. did that happen? How did that come about? That he was already in custody when you were at the scene? Due to his behavior at the apartment, officers believed that he was most likely involved. When the officers originally responded to the apartment, was there anybody home? Yes. Who? The deceased woman in the in the bedroom, the son, and the stepfather. Did the stepfather give any explanation as to, did they have to ask him if they could come in and search around? They did, and I, I believe he gave consent. This guy's a crazy idiot. <laughs> In addition to being a killer. Is that a technical I mean, I, term? I don't mean the it. The crazy I, idiot term? And I don't mean to take it lightly, but I'm just, this is just sort of remarkable. I mean, I, doesn't he watch Criminal Minds? <laughs> anyway, so, and did, did he give any explanation for why um, his, were they married? Was this his wife or is his girlfriend? I believe it was girlfriend. Okay. From what I remember, they were, but he was considered the son's stepfather because he right. had been with him for so many years. Right. But did this stepfather give any reason why there was a dead body in the bedroom not at the time and the patrol officers from what i remember they didn't ask okay yeah. well maybe the question they, just didn't come yeah, up they, they, they probably presupposed they know what happened i i believe they did go in they observed her they also observed ligature strangulation marks on her neck he's the only male subject there so they put him under arrest. So, yeah. so they've done your at least preliminary work for well, you. Well, they had probable cause. <laughs> I think they did. Particularly in the fact that he he answers the door and invites them in, and they ask if they can search, and he gives consent, and they find a body there, which he did not notify them of. Correct. Okay, so. Suspicious. Too. Yes, suspicious yeah. move. And so, yes, one, with the ligature marks, there's probable cause that a crime was committed. Two, the fact that he's standing there in the house and he told the son that the mother went away, but she's dead in the room. And decomposing for at least several days. I think days. you have far yeah. more than probable cause. I think cause. you got what you need. I'm, yeah. I'm liking your chances at trial, but let's, let's not get there yet. So you go back to the station. You find out that he is in custody. Uh, do you talk to him? Yes. He wasn't comfortable talking at first. Um, all he really wanted to do was smoke a cigarette. Um, and obviously it's jail custody policies, nobody can smoke in the jail, but it was also kind of our policy that you didn't do interviews um, unless they were in a confined area. We had interview rooms at the station, but again, you couldn't smoke in the station. So I left the jail for a minute, went back to my senior partner and I said, hey, listen, I think if I let this guy smoke, he's going to tell me everything. So we had a patio outside of the detective bureau at the time, but it wasn't really secure. If, if he was mm -hmm. athletic, he could probably run away from me and scale the eight foot chain link fence and be gone. Was he handcuffed? 
Yeah, I, I did handcuff him um, in the front. Mm-hmm. We wanted to smoke. But you got you have you want to make him feel at least a little bit relaxed if you're going to get a confession. Yeah, but it was also a little risky because I didn't know him. I didn't know he might try and attack me. He's mm-hmm. probably strangled his girlfriend. And because it wasn't in cuss type in custody interview, I was not armed at the time of that interview. Mm-hmm. So um, I put my gun away. So. I grabbed a pack of smokes that we have from the jail that they recover from people that come into jail. Um, sat him down on the outdoor, it's like a picnic bench, and we started talking. And he smoked a cigarette? He smoked quite a few cigarettes. And one of the things that I will say for our listeners is, to, you know, I've found that particular thing and maybe a cup of coffee or a Coke or something like that, doing something nice for a person who's in custody, uh, sometimes you're rewarded by the person then trusting you. And it's one way to help build rapport so that you can start talking to somebody and get them to start talking. Yes. And imagine that that's exactly what you intended to do and did it work? It did work. Um, So I think he smoked a cigarette, started smoking a second cigarette, and that's when I kind of just Asked him, I say, hey, look it. He was read his Miranda rights, right? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet? No. Even though he was in custody? Yeah. Okay. So I asked him, hey, is your wife is dead in the apartment, in the bedroom. Did you have anything to do with this? And when he said yes, then he was read his Miranda rights. Interesting. Really? Because as a prosecutor, I have to say, that statement, inadmissible, I think. Because he's clearly in custody. He's clearly the suspect. He's not free to leave. We had this discussion earlier here in the office before you came in, Jim. I was talking to Tim a little bit, although I did not know this was a situation. But we were talking about putting someone in cuffs before reading the Miranda. And I said, oh, you can't do that. And he looked at me funny. And so I thought, no, oh, you can put somebody in cuffs before you read Miranda. I mean, you can't interrogate you, until after. You can't use this. You can interrogate them. But whatever they you say could not be used. So that's interesting. And this is California. So definitely I can't believe you could use that. Right? What do you think? Well, at the time, it was good because he he hadn't made any incriminating statements to us. Interesting. So he was just... So that was the first incriminating statement. He was he in custody for what purpose? Suspicion of his wife's murder or girlfriend's murder. Okay, we could debate this all day because I'm still thinking that that statement is tossed in court. But I want Tim to tell me what else the guy said because I want to know what happened and why he thinks it's okay to leave a dead body for days and sort of step over it as he goes about his life. After reading him his Miranda rights, he agreed to speak to me further. Um, So he just went on to tell me what happened. What did he say? He said that him and and his uh, girlfriend got into an argument in the living room um, and it got heated and she was, and this was about another man, mm. but she wasn't cheating on him. It was, I think someone that she may have been talking to. Um, he became enraged. Um, he said earlier in the morning, he had taken his shoelace off his, sh- one of his shoes. It was just there. in case it was there on the, co- on the coffee table of the living room. Again, suspicious, Jim. And he grabs that and gets behind her and strangles her to death with it. Now, Jim, you're the profiler in the room. I find this to be a particularly brutal kind of crime, right? In my mind, anyway. Don't comment on that, Jim. 
in my mind anyway, it's akin to stabbing in the sense that it feels very personal to me and very brutal. It's not as impersonal as I feel like shooting someone would be. But I want your opinion. I mean, that's a terrible way to kill someone. There's no good way to kill someone, but you know what I mean. It's a terrible way to kill someone, especially someone you're in a relationship with. That's well, really- it takes minutes. Yeah. It takes minutes, and there's a lot of struggling and pain and panic. And, you know, he's got her in his powerful grasp. What, how, what's the size difference in these people? She's a, uh, I'd say, medium size, uh, not thin, not small, petite, but he was much bigger than her. Well, and that's it. Like you say, it takes minutes, but in those minutes, he can reconsider. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's doing this for a sustained period of time. She's got to be panicking. She's probably kicking and screaming and trying to scratch and do whatever she can to save her life. Yes. Were there defensive wounds on her? On him, no, there was not. Um, and he did say that he held that string tightly around her neck and he, he's guessing somewhere around five minutes. <gasps> did he seem, okay, this is kind of a crazy question, but did he seem sorry? Was he remorseful? Was he crying? He, was he emotional at all while disclosing this horror to he you? He was, he was crying the entire time. Not that he, I feel sorry for him. Yeah, I don't. He, he appeared sad, crying, um. And where was the son? At school? The son was at school. Mm. This was in the, um, I want to say, before noon. So this guy strangles his girlfriend. And what does he do next? So he panics. He doesn't know what to do. Um, And the only thing he can think of is carry her to the bedroom, their bedroom. Oh, that's right, because it happened in the living room. Yeah. Carries her to the bedroom, uh, lays her on to the floor next to the bed and leaves her there for the next four days. And, so, and so let me just with her sleeps next to her in the bed every night. Yeah. Let me just get Wait. this straight though. He doesn't lay her in the bed cause he knows he's going to sleep there. So he lays her on the floor, but he still sleeps in the room with her. That's Oh my God, Jim, this Did is he horror. Work? Nope. So he, he just work. stayed in the apartment the whole time. Yes. For four days. Well, her body decomposed. I'm not sure if he stayed in there for four days, but uh, yeah, he didn't have a job. This guy's, oh my God, Tim. Okay, so he's confessed. You've got a confession. What happens next in the case? Well, we obviously, uh, we filed the case a couple days later. I think at the time we used in gold court. And charged him with? Charged him for murder. And did he go to trial? Did he plead guilty? He did go to trial. Um, <laughs> this is one of this is great because this is one of those cases where this is a I've got nothing to lose. I call it a roll the dice case where the guy knows he's guilty, knows he's probably going to get convicted. There's no point even pleading guilty because maybe his lawyers can inject error into the trial and he'll get another shot and get a better plea deal later. So he just rolls the dice. He confesses, lives with a dead body for four days, and still goes to trial. Every one of our listeners, are you hearing this? Are you hearing what guilty people do? So, what happened in the trial? He's found guilty. I think one of the best parts of the trial that the attorney, um, prosecutor, that did was he, um, I can't remember exactly what the coroner said, how long that it took for her to die. But he brought a um, a large 
uh, like stopwatch mm-hmm. into the courtroom. A classic prosecutor trick. Love it. And it was silence in the courtroom for the five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then explained to the jury that that's how long it took her to die with him choking her. That is a very effective tactic. And it's a fact. I mean, it's what happened. It's part of the evidence. He admitted that it took her a, a minutes, you know, to die. But I think it really does bring home to the jury in a way that prosecutors, we worry that the victim's not in the courtroom, the defendant's sitting there probably crying when he sees crime scene photos, looking all sad and contrite, maybe even family members sitting behind him, supporting him stoically. And so sometimes I think the victim gets lost. And that's one of the prosecutor's main jobs is to make sure the jury remembers the victim and what happened to her. So I like hearing that he was smart and brought in a prop to really bring home to the jury the violence of this crime. Yeah, the prosecutor did a great job. And so what about sentencing? I believe he was sentenced to eight years. What? Eight years? Oh, my God. Welcome to California, Francie. <laughs> eight years. I believe so. Eight years. so terrible. Yeah. So he's probably out by now, Tim. Of course. For murdering his girlfriend, strangling her to death, And throwing her on the floor and living with her body for a week. And leaving the boy he treated as a son motherless. Eight years. Wow. So, Tim, I'm not sure we have to ask this, but we do it anyway. Is this a best case or a worst case for you? It was my best um, rookie homicide detective case because I actually got the confession. That's awesome. Nice. And so how do you remember that case? What, is it, what does it feel like as you recount this case to us? Uh, well, the whole case just makes you sad. Um, I still think about where the son might be from time to time mm-hmm. and how he's doing. He was a very nice kid, and, and she did a very good job with him as a mother. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in any kind of trouble in that they didn't live in a great area. Um, it just seemed like he was going in the right path as far as school and what he wanted to do in life. But so hopefully he's successful. Yeah. And that's an important part of, for our listeners to hear that, I mean, you do when you're in law enforcement, come across people that are wonderful human beings and they've become the victims of crime and you feel for them and you think about them. And I know from my experience, you know, sometimes I'd, I've wanted to reach out, to the victims and see how they were doing. But a lot of times I feel like then I might be just reminding them of the worst time of their life. So, you know, just step back and, you know, hope that they're doing well. Well, Tim, I just want to congratulate you on getting a confession, thinking to bring him in an unorthodox way to a patio, letting him smoke a cigarette that may very well have meant the fact that he got convicted. I mean, defense attorneys are very clever. Evidence seems pretty strong in this case. It seems like even without a confession, he probably would have been convicted. But you never know. Confessions are critical. Yes, absolutely. And it probably taught you a really good lesson about how to treat suspects in order to maximize the chances of getting a good confession. It did. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a great case. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing this with us, Tim. And to our listeners, we'll be back another time with Tim to talk about another case from his career. Until then, signing off for Best Case, Worst Case. 
Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org. Ooh,